Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey friend, I'm so glad you're joining me on the podcast today. I wholeheartedly believe this episode is oh so important because so many of us, like Job, find ourselves in seasons of grief and depression that sometimes seem to linger on forever. Maybe you too have been dealing with something difficult in your own life, such as the loss of someone or something you love. Please hear me when I say that I acknowledge the immense hurt or hurts in your life alongside you and truly love you and deeply care even. But most importantly, oh so importantly, we must remember God loves and cares for us too, even when we don't feel it, especially when we don't feel it, friends. Before we begin, I just want to say thanks for showing up right here, right now, to let God's Word speak into your life for just a bit. Friend, your presence here today for this Bible study time together shows you absolutely do have it in you to show up even when it's so very challenging. We must remember, too, that showing up isn't about doing it perfectly or faking it until we make it even, because I certainly don't believe that that is at all the right approach, friends. I do promise I am someone who deeply understands having to show up even in the midst of grief and depression because I've done it myself. As a side note here, if you are at all curious about what I'm referencing here, be sure to go back and listen to episode 19 of this show, in which I describe one instance of Job-type moments I've experienced in my own life. We all recognize the world is very heavy with troubles and loss. So many of us are carrying something painful at this very moment, and our pain is unlike anyone else's pain. Even if the circumstances seem very similar, there are many, many ways each of us have a different situation. Personalities, relationships, life experiences, and so on. People cannot possibly know how you need to grieve when you might not even know how yourself, and you can't do that for anyone else either. So we definitely need to avoid having incredibly impossible standards for ourselves or others in these seasons. As we have seen in Job's immense losses and his friends' responses to him, grief just does not work this way. There's no one-size-fits-all formula or template to overcome grief nor depression in our lives. Okay, friends, I could keep going on here, but I believe it would be best for us to instead hold on to these thoughts for a moment as we move into our reading of Job chapter 29. Listen in as he expresses his utter grief and despair over all the former blessings in his life that he has lost. The message translation reads, Job now resumed his response. Oh, how I long for the good old days when God took such very good care of me. He always held a lamp before me, and I walked through the dark by its light. Oh, how I miss those golden years when God's friendship graced my home, when the Mighty One was still by my side, and my children were all around me, when everything was going my way and nothing seemed too difficult, when I walked downtown and sat with my friends in the public square, young and old greeted me with respect. I was honored by everyone in town. When I spoke, everyone listened. They hung on my every word. People who knew me spoke well of me. My reputation went ahead of me. 
I was known for helping people in trouble and standing up for those who were down on their luck. The dying blessed me, and the bereaved were cheered by my visits. All my dealings with people were good. I was known for being fair to everyone I met. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, father to the needy and champion of abused aliens. I grabbed street thieves by the scruff of the neck and made them give back what they'd stolen. I thought, I'll die peacefully in my own bed, grateful for a long and full life, a life deep-rooted and well-watered, a life limber and dew-fresh, my soul soaked through with glory, and my body robust until the day I die. Men and women listened when I spoke, hung expectantly on my every word. After I spoke, they'd be quiet, taking it all in. They welcomed my counsel like spring rain, drinking it all in. When I smiled at them, they could hardly believe it. Their faces lit up, their troubles took wing. I was their leader, establishing the mood and setting the pace by which they lived. Where I led, they followed. Goodness, how my heart aches for Job. I imagine we can all relate in one way or another to his feelings of desperate longing for the good old days, before life came crashing down. Have you ever heard this saying I see fairly often on social media? Just because your grief looks different than someone else's, it doesn't mean it is wrong. What a valuable reminder of what we discussed in the opening of today's episode, about how we must allow ourselves and others the space to grieve in their own way, without judgment. Can you even imagine the depth of grief that Job has experienced up to this point in his life? Loss on top of loss, including his family, his livelihood, his possessions, his health, his relationship with his wife, and his friendships, to name a few. <sighs> First five suffering and sovereignty studies shed some light on Job chapter 29, verses 2 and 3, which in the NLT reads, If only I could be as in months gone by, in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone above my head, and I walked through darkness by his light. When we are facing possible death, we tend to open the pages of our past. This is where we find our suffering friend. Job wants to return to the past, the days when God watched over him and he was in prime, the time when blessings seemed limitless and sufferings limited. These were the days before his children were taken and his health failed, the days he felt God close. As the quote-unquote friendly dialogues have become more forceful, Job has been empathetic in his argument of his innocence. He reminds himself and his remaining friends of all the good things in the good old days. As Job looks back, he paints a beautiful portrait of God's bountiful blessings and how Job used them to benefit others. Job was a respected leader in his community. Community leaders conducted business in the open square and at the city gate. At these meetings, they rendered justice and made business and judicial decisions. The young, old, noble, and common people would stop to listen when Job spoke. His wisdom and knowledge made him a sought member of the town. Individuals would approach him in the streets to glean discernment in important personal matters. Job leveraged his blessings for others in need. When the needy cried out to him, he helped them. He paid special attention to those no one helped, the widow and the orphan. Job fought fiercely against evil. In a matter of moments, Job disproved the arguments of his friends. He had not been the ogre, an evil man they had portrayed him to be back in chapter 22, verses 4 through 11. He was the portrait of a good man and had the blessed past to prove it. Job's trip down memory lane not only disproves his friends, but it also proves what God said in his conversation with Satan in Job chapter 1, verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? 
There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. As I grow older, I like remembering the good old days. Our past is important to our future. Remembering helps us stay grounded in who we are, and most importantly, who we are not. The God who blessed us in the past is present with us in the now and will lead us in our great future. Our past, including present suffering, is a precursor to the amazing new things God has in store for us. In a similar way, the Jesus Bible has this to say about what we see happening in verses 1-6 through in a section titled, Longing for Former Glory. The Christian life contains mountains and valleys. There are moments when the experience of God feels so real, high, and tangible. Then there are moments in which God feels distant and far away. Expecting only mountaintop experiences with God reveals a misunderstanding of the Christian life. The God who people worship on the mountain is the same one who walks with them through the valleys. Job found himself in a low valley, a death valley. God seemed so far away. The times that he had spent on the mountain with God seemed like another lifetime. Job longed for past glory, a time when he had experienced good things. He was tired of his present condition and simply wanted to move on. He was heartbroken as he remembered how good his life had been. God's people can always trust that he is with them. God has promised never to leave or forsake his people. When Jesus' followers find themselves at a low point in their journey with God, they need not lose heart. God is with them on the mountains and in the valleys. Job's longing for the past foreshadows Jesus' prayer to the Father the night before he was betrayed and killed. Jesus expressed his longing for the glory he had experienced in eternity. Jesus found himself in a valley lower than Job's. Jesus had known a glory that was so much greater than Job's. His heart truly broke as he faced suffering, but Jesus died to make the glory of eternity pass into the future hope of everyone who would trust in him in faith. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 teaches that Jesus had true glory from God. The Son was sent by the Father to come down off the mountain of glory to suffer in the valley. God's way of bringing Jesus out of the valley was not around the suffering, but through suffering. God sent Jesus up the hill to Golgotha, where Jesus experienced the ultimate loss, loss of the love of his Father. In that moment, God made Jesus to be sin so that his people could become the righteousness of God, as referenced in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Jesus endured all this for his glory and for the good of his people. Remembering Christ in the low valleys of life provides sustenance and comfort for the journey back up the mountain. As we consider that God even had His own Son go through suffering, not around it, it should give us confirmation, as I said before, that if God allows us to go through sufferings and heartbreaks, then He absolutely has a plan to use those seasons for our good, the good of others, and for His glory. He does not waste our tears, and we never walk alone, no matter how low our valley goes. When trying to keep putting one foot in front of the other to cope to live through seasons of grief, I'm reminded of some thoughts I read in a book by Lisa Whittle called The Hard Good, showing up for God to work in you when you want to shut down. Friends, that subtitle alone reminds me not only of my own thoughts and feelings in difficult seasons, but also seems to directly relate to other things we hear Job saying as well. Okay, so before we hear from Lisa Whittle, though, I thought you might appreciate this excerpt from The Ford, written by none other than Lisa Turkhurst. 
I don't know about you, but I certainly feel she's practically a study partner alongside us by now, as we have dug deep into her experiences and the wisdom she has learned along the way through the pages of her book, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. And don't you just love seeing things fit together or the threads we discover showing up in how one resource fits with the next? It's absolutely amazing how God does something as seemingly small as that. God of the details, right? Okay, so as mentioned, listen to this excerpt from the Ford of the Heart Good, as Lisa Turker shares. I wish life could just be good, fun, pleasant, meaningful, predictable, but also adventurous. And that good would last forever, devoid of fear, anxiety, tragedy, heartbreak, betrayal, and grief. But that's not the way life works. Maybe it's because we live in a sin-soaked world not capable of perfection. Or maybe it's because without the bitter, is it even possible to appreciate the sweet? Without the dark, would the light ever be appreciated for the gift it is? And without the hard, will we recognize the good as good? I can't think of a better person equipped than my friend Lisa Whittle to tackle the hand-in-hand partnership of the title of this book, The Hard Good. She knows the angst of the hard in deeply personal ways. She knows the choice of good because her heart purely seeks Jesus, and she truly wants to make a holy difference by helping others. But it's in the combination of both words, hard and good, that she has learned to wear wisdom like an old sweatshirt that's your favorite because it's so broken in. At times, life has broken Lisa, as it has all of us. But while fully acknowledging her heartbreak, she is equally committed to having it work for her and for a good that she pursues relentlessly. I love her for that. I am grateful to her since I need this reminder as much as anyone. Once, while working out together, aka dying and trying to make sure your t-shirt stays pulled down to hide the obvious reality of the backside of life, insert big-eyed emoji, I was asking her questions about this book. I reversed the title and said to her, look at us doing the good hard things in this workout. She graciously tilted her head and kindly corrected me. Hard good. End on the good. The hard is part of the journey, but the good is where we will land. Brilliant. I've thought about this conversation just about every day since. Some things in my life right now are so hard I sometimes have to remind myself to exhale. I can find myself swept into a panic attack, as unexpectedly as a person enjoying the beach one moment and swept away by a tsunami the next. And my deep desire for normalcy is sometimes hijacked by choices that aren't my own and yet affect me so deeply I want to hide in the nearest bathroom stall. How can any of this be good? I imagine you're asking the same question over something or someone in your life right now. And you're wondering if it is even worth it to try reading another book. After all, it's hard to get high on hope only to quickly get knocked down by your circumstances again, leaving your soul questioning everything. We need more than pat answers, plastic suggestions, and an author with too perfect of a life to truly understand our desperation. There is a lot at stake here. Well, friend, breathe. Settle in. Dare to crack open these pages. Find a friend in Lisa that will be gentle when needed, challenging when appropriate, and so very gracious as she cares for your pain. You can, as I do, trust her with your heart. Let's do this. Together we will discover the hard good is the best good, even if especially if you seriously doubt that right now. You'll soon see. Together we can do the hard good. Love you, Lisa Turkhurst. Moving on, in chapter 6 titled Making Peace with Life When It's Brought Loss, Lisa Whittle says, 
For some of us, it's not one big loss that marks our lives. It's loss after loss we've experienced that has led us to feel as though we are constantly having a losing hand. Our spouse leaves. Our job falls through. Just one of these hurts would be hard, but put them together and a combination of blows threatens to take us out. If I've learned one thing, it's that life doesn't ask permission to be hard. Loss is hard because it's rarely on our terms. Otherwise, it would be choice, not loss. As novelist John Green once said, it hurts because it mattered. Loss supports this. Our people matter to us. The closer the relationship, the deeper the ache when it's lost. Part of the ache might be regret. Sometimes we feel a deep loss because we weren't close. Didn't say that one last I love you. Wish we could have done or been more. Regret is one of those things that prolongs wounds and deters healing. That is when we have to remember these two words from chapter one that are so important in our process to get well. What now? The longer we keep hitting replay on what we wish were different, the longer we stay in a furnace of pain. Part of grief is often anger. When loss takes from us, we get wildly fierce. In some cases, our anger turns inward and we completely shut down. When we lose people, even if we did the walking away, we may be too mad to honor how much we once loved them. But when we are ready, it would do us some real good. This may be hard to hear, especially during fresh grief, because loss makes us feel as if we're the most unfortunate people in the world. But over time, God can help us to see the blessing of having gone through it. A brief gift is still a gift. I am notorious for wanting things on my own terms, which ultimately means not only the things I want, but also for the length of time. God has had to remind me on many occasions that our relationship doesn't include me telling Him details and Him executing them. I still want this, by the way, but I am learning, slowly, that I can live without all my demands being met. I know that asking you to consider making peace with your loss probably feels like a horrible idea when you never agreed with the loss in the first place. I know you may be mad at your life, mad at God, or mad at the way things have turned out, maybe all three. What if the anger isn't really anger? What if it is love turned to hurt? If that is true, could that love be directed into something more hopeful? You don't have to agree with your loss to make peace with it. What I'm suggesting is, as part of your healing, we pray for God to change our perspective. Not only so we can simply stay alive to our life, but also that He can make much of our life. I know you may not believe that you have a lot left after your loss, so to hear that He can still do His greatest work in you seems like a reach. But I wholeheartedly believe that it is true. He can not only do this within His intention and capabilities, but it won't require us getting on board with something we can't agree with in theory. Perspective changes are not concessions. They are agreeing to possess a different outlook to help us press on while the reality of our circumstances stay the same. We can all do this with the help of God. Making peace when life brings loss doesn't mean we are ever okay with it. It means our only alternative to acceptance is to stop living too. Making peace doesn't make the loss right. It decides not to waste the next years trying to undo something we don't have the power to undo. Making peace isn't just going along with a plan that caused you pain and dramatically changed your life. It's choosing not to let the world steal away any more of your good life. If we run to our Bibles when we are stripped of something we love, we often do one of two things. Either we run to the book of Job for comfort, 
or we run the other way because we don't want the reminder of how much worse things can get. Those of us who run to Job do so because we need to believe that we can make it when the worst that could happen does. And strangely, Job gives us hope. His life contains loss after loss, but he never loses God. For 42 chapters, he goes on a journey to make peace with his life. Don't think Job did it perfectly. Otherwise, in Job 42, he would have no reason to repent. But somewhere along the way, God changed his perspective. All the loss, as hard as it was, was for good. I'm not asking you to like what happened or suggesting you should be okay with your loss. Instead of trying to understand it, consider it asking God to give you eyes to see something about it you haven't been able to see. Only with His vision will we gain a different perspective, and only with Him will we possibly find anything good. Good. Your grief and disappointment will bring newfound belief that what remains must matter. The hardest peace you may ever have to make is a peace you make with yourself. It's not about making peace with losing them or that, but making peace with the person inside. Many times this is a byproduct of great loss or a series of losses. We miss who we were before that relationship, before that event that broke our heart, before we became cynical and hardened, almost unrecognizable to ourselves. This matters a lot because we often believe that we are not whole if we lose parts of ourselves in the process of enduring hard things. But hard things always change us, even if not for the good. When we face loss, it is inevitable that we will never quite be the same. I don't want us to spend any more of our life trying to get the old us back. I want us to ask God to do much and even more than ever before with what remains of our life. It is possible. I think about all the quote-unquote used-to-be stories I've heard from women over the years. Stories of how they used to be strong or so happy or so sure of themselves until this or that happened. Now much of their time is spent figuring out ways to get that old self back or at least make peace with what's left. Who do you long to get back? It's hard when you lose yourself, but it's good when your loss helps you find more of God. Maybe you lost quote-unquote her, but the her you will find now will be stronger and more resilient. Maybe she will be the same her as before, but she will now be more patient, more understanding, more willing to sit and linger and listen because she has learned not to take things for granted. Maybe a lot of things will be better with the new her now that God has helped her find her way back again. We can look at our losses as unredeemable negatives, or we can look at them as God's greatest work in us at work now, the ultimate in what remains mattering. Much of this will come down to the choice of perspective and whether we will let him heal our hearts. Oh, friends, so much wisdom here. Painful, but true. Before we move on, consider answering this statement in your own life. If I hadn't blank, I wouldn't be able to blank. The answers matter if we are ever going to change our perspective about the hard things, if we are ever going to let God heal our hearts. Continuing on in our excerpt, Lisa says, No matter your backstory, the time will come when you'll need to make peace with yourself, either with who you are after life dealt you those hard things, or with who God created you to be from the start. This may be your longest, hardest quest ever. We talked in chapter one about these historic roots of accepting yourself. You'll never make peace with anything in life if you don't start here. At some point, a degree of underlying turmoil will emerge. 
who God created us to be can be either our joy or our albatross, and we will live with whichever we hang around our necks. When we lose parts of ourselves, we often turn to other behaviors, some that stick with us for years if we aren't willing to ask God to heal us fully, as only He can. This is why it is even more crucial that we learn to make peace with hard things, not only so God can use them for our good, but also so we don't become people we aren't, but are emulating in our resolved pain. Here are the five I found to be most typical. The morpher. Because we received the message that who we were wasn't quite right, good, or wanted, we decided it was noble to squelch our personality to fit someone else's mold. The muted. Someone abused us, and we felt they took away our voice. The escape artist. We got jaded or hurt and ran away or retreated to escape dealing with the pain. The bench warmer. We took ourselves out of the game due to insecurity. The hesitator. We felt unappreciated and decided it wasn't worth the risk of putting ourselves out there again. I'm again here, friends. Can I just be truly honest with you right now and saying I have found myself guilty of all five of these tendencies at some point or another in my own life, sometimes all at the same time? As a matter of fact, there are some things in my life that I feel God is asking me to lean into right now, to take a closer look at those painful memories in hindsight and reframe my perspective of what good has come into my life now in light of those seasons, to finally make peace with those memories. Oof. Goodness gracious, this is hard but good. How I continue to pray the hard will end up being good work in this instance and in many others God leads me to sort out in a new way in the future. Reminds me of that statement we read in the forward. The hard is part of the journey, but the good is where we will land. That good landing is definitely what I am praying for as I revisit the hard. Oh my. Lisa continues on here by saying, I'm well aware there's a lot of ground here. Unspoken history, life lived, and stories for all of us of which I cannot know. As you read, you may relate to the loss of a person or something else or the need to make peace with you. Whole stories are built upon tough childhoods and hard moments we prefer to forget. For many of us, a lot of pain, possibly a long history of identity issues, requires a lot of unearthing to be done. Whole lives are wrapped around narratives, true or false. Please don't let your story or preferences get in the way of why God created you. He is in the business of taking the harder story and making it end well. It may not be the fancy bow conclusion, but it will close with celebration because don't we all really know the truth? All of this has always been about Him. So the ending is good. Making peace with life means making peace with the way life has turned out, things we've been an active participant in, and things not caused by our own hands. I've watched a lot of us struggle with this aspect of ourselves, mostly because forgiveness is often attached to making peace, and many of us are not so good at that. We either want to move on without true resolution or stay stuck in a stalemate with inner turmoil. Making peace is choosing to have a future rather than making more trips around the sun with the past. Wow, I'm going to repeat that last sentence to be sure we all, myself included, heard it. Making peace is choosing to have a future rather than making more trips around the sun with the past. Continuing on, Job says in chapter 30, But no longer. Now I'm the butt of their jokes, young thugs, whippersnappers. Why, I considered their fathers more inexperienced pups. But they are worse than dogs, good for nothing, stray, mangy animals. 
half-starved scavenging the back alleys, howling at the moon, homeless ragamuffins chewing on old bones and licking old tin cans, outcasts from the community, cursed as dangerous delinquents. Nobody would put up with them. They were driven from the neighborhood. You could hear them out there at the edge of town, yelping and barking, huddled in junkyards, a gang of beggars and no-names thrown out on their ears. But now I'm the one they're after, mistreating me, taunting and mocking. They abhor me. They abuse me. How dare those scoundrels? They spit in my face. Now that God has undone me and left me in a heap, they hold nothing back. Anything goes. They come at me from my blind side, trip me up, and jump on me while I'm down. They throw every kind of obstacle in my path, determined to ruin me, and no one lifts a finger to help me. They violate my broken body, trample through the rubble of my ruined life. Terrors assault me, my dignity in shreds, salvation up in smoke. And now my life drains out, and suffering seizes and grips me hard. Night gnaws at my bones, and pain never lets up. I am tied hand and foot, my neck in a noose. I twist and turn, thrown face down in the muck. I'm a muddy mess, inside and out. I shout for help, God, and get nothing, no answer. I stand to face you in protest, and you give me a blank stare. You've turned into my tormentor. You slap me around, knock me about. You raised me up so I was riding high and then dropped me, and I crashed. I know you're determined to kill me, to put me six feet under. What did I do to deserve this? Did I ever hit anyone who's calling for help? Haven't I wept for those who live a hard life, been heartsick over the lot of the poor? But where did it get me? I expected good, but evil showed up. I looked for light, but darkness fell. My stomach's in a constant churning, never settles down. Each day confronts me with more suffering. I walk under a black cloud. The sun is gone. I stand in the congregation in protest. I howl with the jackals. I hoot with the owls. I'm black and blue all over, burning up with fever. My fiddle plays nothing but the blues. My mouth harp wails laments. Oh, how my heart continues to break for Job as we read through these chapters and verses here. His longing for all he has lost, the grief, the intense feelings of depression, despair. Oh, Job, hang in there. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study of verses 15 through 17 asks, Can anything good come from suffering? Is it possible that our hardships and heartbreaks can create something worth keeping? If so, what is it? After reflecting on the past and remembering the good old days, Job is jarred back into his bleak reality. The good life he had once enjoyed has been disfigured into a gnawing existence that seems a persistent punishment. What a dramatic contrast. Maybe for a few brief moments, Job was able to mentally escape the pain and heartache as he reminisced on the blessings of his former life, when his children were alive and his relationship with God was a treasured friendship, when laughter and joyful conversations were a consistent part of his days and when his lush fields were bursting with abundant crops and healthy animals. Back then, Job was respected by others in the community who spoke highly of him and sought his counsel. But now, no one in the community admired Job or wanted to be like him. No longer did anyone ask for his noble advice. Instead of sitting at the city gate in honor, Job was banished from his community, sinking in a pile of dust and ashes. Even the lowly outcasts of the community were hostile towards Job. Young vandals took advantage of his weakened condition, repeatedly attacking Job and making him the object of their sarcastic slang. They even spit in his face. As Job's safety and dignity vanished, the sufferings continued to intensify. 
Isn't it a miracle that Job didn't take his own life or lose his sanity from all the trauma he endured? Job may not have realized it at the time, but his suffering was creating much more than soul brokenness and despair. It was simultaneously producing perseverance. How? After all that Job had been through, he was still asking questions, still voicing his opinion, still expressing his emotions, still searching for God and grasping for a sliver of hope in a hopeless situation. In his own way, Job was still fighting for his life, although from his angle, it didn't appear there was very much left of it. Sure, it may not have been the kind of perseverance that looks heroic or courageous to some, but Job was absolutely persevering through his suffering. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about the connection between sufferings and perseverance. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that kind of suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul didn't say great opportunities or life's biggest moments produce perseverance. No, he said suffering produces perseverance, plus character and hope. We will all face suffering in our lives, every single one of us. Trying to avoid it is like trying to avoid breathing and remaining alive at the same time. It simply won't happen. It's human nature to only reflect on the bad parts of our past or present sufferings. But Paul challenges us to consider the good that is produced and the glory that can come from it. Just like we will soon see in Job's life, our trials will ultimately lead us to a magnificent end if we keep pursuing and trusting God. We're not promised it will all happen here on earth, but what awaits us for eternity is both glorious and absolutely worth persevering for. In the Suffering and the God Who Speaks study by She Reads Truth, they offer this very relatable perspective of what is happening here in chapter 30. It says, As if Job's suffering isn't enough, he must now endure the scorn of onlookers, men who spit on him and openly despise him, simply for the suffering that's befallen him. Worse, these onlookers were once far beneath Job on the social, economic, and moral ladder. Now they're mocking him. Job falls into a unique type of despair caused when you are suffering, but those around you are not. No one was literally spitting on me, but I have certainly experienced scorn for my suffering from those around me. I experience it most on social media. Whenever I see a friend post about something she has that I don't, but wish I did, I feel the scorn. A husband, a child, another book coming out. Posts about these things can strike a sensitive nerve in me, a place that quietly suffers from loneliness, longing, and lack. Because of this, a simple engagement announcement, wedding photo, or book cover reveal can feel like torture to my heart. Unlike the wicked men in our reading today, this mocking is completely unintentional on the part of my friends, but it still has the power to deepen my despair. Not only because comparison is the thief of joy, but because the voice of the mockers convinced me that I am alone in my suffering. Everyone else's life seems to be moving along according to plan. Mine is not. I wonder if Satan sent the mockers to Job, and I wonder if he did so knowing how frail we humans are in the face of loneliness. Suffering is difficult. Suffering alone is unbearable. Perhaps this would be Job's tipping point. I would have understood if it was, but Job still cries out to God. In a despairing cry, but a cry nonetheless, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. His words foreshadow the ultimate cry of despair. When Christ hangs on a cross and asks in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, 
My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Christ suffered. Christ was mocked in that suffering. Christ felt forsaken by God. All of Christ's work in ministry led to those hours of scorn on the cross. And yet I continue to sit in my suffering. I look at the thriving lives of those around me, and I convince myself I'm alone when the exact opposite is true. This is why the companionship of Christ and the knowledge of His sufferings are so important to hold onto in our darkest times. If we do not listen first to these truths, we will only hear the voices of the mockers telling us that we are alone. But you are not. We are not. Not in this. Not ever. Jesus has cried out on our behalf, and because of Him, we are not forsaken, not abandoned, and never forgotten in our suffering. As a matter of fact, asking God why may never result in an answer that satisfies us, but we can be certain that the process will lead us to God's heart. This may be the very thing that actually heals us from our need to know. Friends, you will just have to keep trusting me here for now, as I promise this concept will become a bit clearer when God shows up on the scene with Job. Be sure to not miss out on that conversation in an episode to come very soon. In the meantime, though, continuing on in chapter 31, we hear Job's final declaration of his innocence before his friends, and more importantly, before God, when he says, I made a solemn pact with myself never to undress a girl with my eyes. So what can I expect from God? What do I deserve from God Almighty above? Isn't calamity reserved for the wicked? Isn't disaster supposed to strike those who do wrong? Isn't God looking, observing how I live? Doesn't He mark every step I take? Have I walked hand in hand with falsehood or hung out in the company of deceit? Weigh me on a set of honest scales so God has proof of my integrity. If I've strayed off the straight and narrow, wanted things I had no right to, messed around with sin, go ahead then, give my portion to someone who deserves it. If I've let myself be seduced by a woman and conspired to go to bed with her, Fine, my wife has every right to go ahead and sleep with anyone she wants to. For disgusting behavior like that, I deserve the worst punishment you can hand out. Adultery is a fire that burns the house down. I wouldn't expect anything I count dear to survive it. Have I ever been unfair to my employees when they brought a complaint to me? What, then, will I do when God confronts me? When God examines my books, what can I say? Didn't the same God who made me make them? Aren't we all made of the same stuff? Equals before God. Have I ignored the needs of the poor, turned my back on those in need, taken care of my own needs and fed my own face while they languished? Wasn't my home always open to them? Weren't they always welcome at my table? Have I ever left a poor family shivering in the cold when they had no warm clothes? Didn't the poor bless me when they saw me coming knowing I brought clothes from my closet? If I'd ever used my strength and influence to take advantage of the unfortunate, go ahead, break both my arms, cut off all my fingers— The fear of God has kept me from these things. How else could I ever face Him? Did I set my heart on making big money or worship at the bank? Did I boast about my wealth, show off because I was well off? Was I ever so awed by the sun's brilliance and moved by the moon's beauty that I let myself become seduced by them and worship them on the sly? If so, I would deserve the worst of punishments, for I would be betraying God Himself. Did I ever gloat over my enemy's ruin? or get excited over my rival's bad luck? No, I never said a word of distraction, never cursed them, even under my breath. Didn't those who worked for me say he fed us well, there were always second helpings, and no stranger ever had to spend a night in the street, my doors were always open to travelers. Did I hide my sin the way Adam did, 
or conceal my guilt behind closed doors because I was afraid of what people would say, fearing the gossip of neighbors so much that I turned myself into a recluse? You know good and well that I didn't. Oh, if I had someone who could give me a hearing. I'd sign my name to my defense, let the Almighty One answer. I want to see my indictment in writing. Anyone's welcome to read my defense. I'll write it on a poster and carry it around town. I'm prepared to account for every move I've ever made to anyone and everyone, prince or pauper. If the very ground that I farm accuses me, if the furrows fill with tears for my abuse, if I've ever assaulted the earth for my own profit or dispossessed its rightful owners, then curse it with thistles instead of wheat, curse it with weeds instead of barley. The words of Job to his three friends were finished. Finished. Can you even begin to imagine how hurt, frustrated, and exhausted Job is at this point? Oh, friends, have you ever found yourself needing to defend your actions or even defend your character? It is difficult to do, and one thing that makes it so difficult is that you are not wanting to sound prideful in talking about yourself. And this is basically what we see happening to Job and him having to do in chapter 31. This chapter records Job's last words of self-defense. He's had to defend himself against the repeated accusation his friends have been making that he's secretly sinning, declaring his innocence again and again and again. As we have previously discussed, Job's friends believe that God works in this world in such a way that good is always and only rewarded and sin is always and only punished in this life. And so... The friends see what has happened to Job and all of his suffering, and they assume that God is punishing him for some sort of sin. At the same time, Job also believes generally the same thing that his friends believe, but he knows that he has not committed some sort of sin that would deserve God's punishment, and that causes great confusion in his mind. God's ways don't make sense to Job. And so in chapter 31, Job is basically calling to God's attention the fact that he's not doing anything deserving of the kind of treatment that God has been giving him and asking God to respond. Spoiler alert here. Please hang on as I promise that very soon God will show up in response to Job's request, but we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves right now. Oops. (laughs) Okay, friends, since we are quickly running out of time, let's end today's episode by joining together in prayer. As we come to a close today, Father God, we truly feel as though we have been taken through all of it. Job's memories, the unimaginable loss, the immense grief, feelings of depression, and a heart desperately wanting to give up under the weight of it all. We are also reminded that you are never frustrated or annoyed by the many why questions Job brought to you, the same ones we find ourselves thinking and saying out loud in our own heartaches too. And as we heard today from the Hard Good Book, we pray for a faith to continue trusting that the hard comes before the good in our lives. Change our perspective, Father God. Help us show up for you to do your work in us, most especially when we want to shut down. We thank you that even when we don't feel it and struggle to believe it, you never let go. Thank you for being the one we can always count on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, as we are nearing the end of today's episode, can I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast? Why should you subscribe, you ask? Well, because that way you don't have to go find it. It comes to you free delivery. (laughs) If you want to subscribe, all you have to do is go back to the main page for the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast, wherever you're listening right now, and click the subscribe button. Subscribing is the best way to never miss an episode. 
it will just show up into your podcast app every other Wednesday ready to study with you. So I'll see you right back here next time and the next time and every time after that. Well, you get the idea, right? (laughs) And if you've liked this episode, could you share it with a friend, rate, review, you know, do all the things people like to do with a podcast? I sure do want to thank you in advance because those are all the absolute best ways to help others find out about this show. Please be sure to check out the resources I feature each episode in the show notes. I share them because I believe they are a very valuable way to take your study times even further. I so hope you aren't missing out on these resources to dig deeper after our study time together. Show notes can be found in the show notes pages on the mfaring.com website. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. Thank you.